0: Luke 24, beginning in verse 36, says, As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins shall be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple blessing God. Let's pray. O oh Lord, may we know that blessing, that you are the God who desires to bless us, and so you sent your Son for us. What is we... Look at these final verses of the Gospel of Luke. Would you stir in us? Would you give us strength for the week and the days ahead? Would you give us a greater joy and love for you? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. July 1st, 2018. That may seem like a long time ago, or not that long. It was a time in which many of you were not even here, and yet that is when we began the Gospel of Luke. Now, two and a half years later, we've finished. We've had a sabbatical, some other series, some other important sermons. But with this 79th sermon on the Gospel of Luke, this study comes to an end. Now, if you don't remember the beginning, we'll briefly review, because Luke has masterfully crafted his Gospel so that the themes that he showed in the beginning were then explained in the middle, and now he recapitulates them at the end. He's following what you may know as the classical mantra for giving a speech. Tell them what you're going to say. Say it. Tell them what you said. Now, not to be misunderstood, Luke is not creating this material, but rather, rather giving an orderly narrative of what eyewitnesses have seen. You can look back and turn for just a minute to Luke chapter 1 because there we see that he did all this for a man named Theophilus. It tells us in verse 3 that he might, verse 4, have certainty concerning about the things he has been taught. He didn't want Theophilus just to believe because he'd been told. He wanted him to realize there is real historical reasons why he should believe this. And then it began and he told of this man named Zechariah who went to the temple and there though he and his wife was old he was given an angelic announcement that they would bear a son whom they should name john and that this son would be like the prophet elijah then the story shifted to this young virgin named mary and she was told she was gonna bear a son who they should name jesus and that he was gonna come and it says in verse 32 and 33 of chapter one he will be great And he will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Well, then the story shifted back to Zechariah. And he prophesies of his child in verses 76 and 77 of chapter 1. And he says, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Well, then the day of Jesus' birth came, and in the region of Bethlehem, out in the fields were shepherds, and angels came to them. And they say in chapter 2, verse 14, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When it was time for Jesus to be taken into the temple, his parents took him there. And there, a man named Simeon, who had been told by God, you will not die until you see the Messiah, was there. And when Jesus came, he took him up in his arms. And he says this in chapter 2, verses 29 through 32. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And so there was kind of these three main themes going through Luke's gospel that were introduced in this early part. And Luke thro- shows us through the gospel and now here recapitulates it at the end that first, Jesus came to reign forever as God's son, as David's king, setting up his kingdom. Second, he came to bring peace through the forgiveness of sins. And third, he came to do this for Jew and Gentile. It's interesting, though, as we read through this, and if you go back to Luke 24 and read from the beginning, it seems as though Luke is giving us one very full day in the life of Jesus. And yet, we had read earlier Acts 1, 1 through 1-11, which was also written by Luke. This companion series, Luke and Acts, go together, and there we're told that Jesus was with them 40 days after his resurrection. So was it all in one day or was it 40 days? Well, I have a friend who's a missionary and he said, whenever I come back and I'm talking to someone and I say, how was your time? I have to kind of mentally get, figure out, are they wanting the 30 seconds, how was my time? Do they want the three minute, how was my time? Or do they want the, let's go, get, have, co- go have coffee and have the 30 minute, how was your time? Well, here in Luke, we're given the 32nd. What happened? In Acts, we're given the three-minute. We're not given the 30 minutes. We're given the three-minute. And yet, they're both telling the same story. One just condenses it. The other enlarges it. And what happened in 40 days? Well, it would take more than 30 minutes to share all that. So there could be an even larger version. But as John said in his gospel, if all that Jesus did was written down, all the books in the world could not contain it. But here... Luke wraps up his gospel by showing us three things. First, in verses 36 through 43, Jesus shows himself to the disciples. Then, in verses 44 through 49, Jesus teaches and commissions the disciples. Lastly, in 50 through 53, Jesus blesses and leaves his disciples. But it's been a while since we've been in these verses, so let's remember the context. Jesus died, and on the third day, The women went to his tomb to anoint it with oil. But when they went there, they saw an angel. And he said, why are you here? He is not here as he said. He has arisen. And so the women went back with joy to tell the disciples. They didn't believe. They thought this was kind of a myth, a tale, a story they were making up. And yet Peter hurried back and looked. Well, that same day, two disciples left and were on their way to a town called Emmaus. And as they're walking along, talking about all that's happened in the last week, Jesus appears to them, though they don't recognize him, and we're not told why. And they're walking and talking, and they're telling Jesus all that's happened about this man named Jesus of Nazareth. But then it says, (coughs) and they say to Jesus, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. These disciples had hoped that Jesus was this Messiah, the Redeemer, but he's died. And our hope is crushed. But then Jesus explained to them what all these things meant. And from the Old Testament scriptures, how all these things had to happen. That night they went and they ate a meal in the village of Emmaus together. And after Jesus gave thanks and broke the bread, their eyes were opened and they saw, this is Jesus. And then he vanished from their midst. They then rushed back to Jerusalem. And that is where we are right now. And in verse 36, they're talking And Jesus comes and stands in their midst. John records a similar event. And in chapter 20, verse 19, he says the doors were locked and Jesus came into their midst. Just as he was able to vanish in Emmaus, he is able to appear in Jerusalem. And he says to them, peace to you. When we hear the word peace, we often think of it as a contrast of conflict. Well, we're not in conflict, we're at peace. The biblical idea includes that, but it's more. It's an idea of wholeness, a completeness. When all of life is functioning as God originally intended it. And Jesus came to bring peace with God, with this world, with one another. Thus, this was the message of the angels when Jesus arrived. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. And it's the message he gives now as he is about to depart. Having grown up in Christian homes and being familiar with the Christmas story, this is probably no shocking message. Oh yes, Jesus came to bring peace, we all know that. But remember the last time many of these disciples saw Jesus, or the last time Jesus saw them. It was their dark figures fleeing in the dark as they wanted nothing to do with him. As they fled, because we don't want to be with Jesus. Now, yes, Peter circled back around, but then he denied Jesus three times. Yes, John was there because he was friends with one of the high priest's servants, but most of them saw Jesus last with a run away from him. And Jesus had even said in Matthew ten thirty three, whoever denies me before men, I also will deny him before my Father who is in heaven. So they probably expect Jesus is going to come in, denounce them he's going to come and condemn them and yet he comes and says peace to you and yet they they still don't understand they we see in verse 37 they think this is a ghost they have no other way their mind can grasp the doors are all locked and now someone is in our midst what is this now before we condemn them I mean, didn't they know the women said and Peter went and they were just talking about Emmaus? They should know. Don't we do similar things? You know, we hear a sermon on forgiveness and we delight in all the things we've done and God forgives us. And then as we're walking out the door, someone bumps us and we just lash into them. We can say, oh yes, we love God's forgiveness and yet we're pretty unforgiving at times. Oh yes, we believe he rose from the dead, but who's this person right in front of us? That doesn't make sense. You know, we believe, but we Don't believe. And so Jesus in verse 38 says, Why are you troubled? Why do you have these doubts in your heart? And he doesn't say, Well, once you all figure it out, let me know and I'll come back. He gives them proof of who he really is. First, he says, Look, come feel me. Come touch my hands, my feet. A ghost can't be seen and felt. You can see him, but you can't touch them. And though Jesus shows them this, in verse 41 it says, They still can't believe because of joy. Now, this is not the unbelief of a skeptic. This is the unbelief of a wife whose husband has come home early from deployment. And in her joy, she says, I can't believe you're really home. Now, does she really mean I don't believe this? No, it's a way of saying I'm so overwhelmed with joy, I can't believe it's you. And that's what the disciples are saying because it says they do this with joy. And so Jesus gives them a second proof of their resurrection. He asks for food. Ghosts can't eat. And so Jesus is showing them as he eats this broiled fish, I am here physically amongst you. And thus Luke is providing for Theophilus. Remember, that's who this was primarily written to, secondarily to us, thousands of years later. The very thing he promised, and that is eyewitness testimony of the reality of who Jesus is and what he did. And this testimony should keep us from two common errors that are still springing up 2,000 years later. First, the idea that, well, yes, Jesus arose kind of metaphysically, spiritually in my heart. But yeah, that's a great idea that death doesn't win. He spiritually arose. Well, no, he did spiritually arise, but he arose physically, bodily. He can be Felt, touched, he can eat. And yet the other error is to think that Jesus only bodily arose, as though his dead body just was revived. Jesus' resurrection is different than Lazarus' resurrection. When Jesus brought Lazarus back from the dead, Lazarus was going to have to die again. Jesus rose and was given a new Immortal, resurrected, physical body that will never die, that will live forever. And when we die and rise again, we will be given new resurrection bodies. Bodies that will be able to eat and drink, but without any of the ravages of sickness and death. And this is good news. We are not going to die and then rise again to a wispy ghost existence being given a harp to play on for all eternity. You will be given a body. What you do and enjoy now, that isn't sinful, will be done and enjoyed with God forever. We're not just going to be ghosts. And yet Jesus does not want them just to have visible evidence of the resurrection. He wants them to understand why he rose again. And so he goes on in verses 40 49, through 49. And he teaches them. And then he's going to commission them. We see this in verse 44, the second thing Jesus teaches and commissions the disciples. It says in verse 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now notice Jesus is saying that this was necessary. This was not optional. God didn't have plan A, B, C, all the way to Z. And then as Jesus navigated life on earth, he goes, eh, well, A's no longer going to work. B, no, F, okay, we'll go with plan J. That's the one we're going to go with. No, there was one plan for all eternity. It was foretold of in the Old Testament. Jesus lived it in the New Testament, and the rest of the New Testament reflects upon it. And Jesus now takes the time to explain to them. From the law, Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And that's basically a way uh, the Jews use to describe the entirety of their scriptures. He's saying from Genesis to Malachi, if that's how you order it, this all told about me. What was all of that? Well, that would be wonderful to have written down. We don't have it all. We looked into it some when we talked about Jesus on the road to Emmaus because he said similar things there. But what he's wanting them to realize is this important truth. If you want to understand the Scriptures, look at the Scriptures. It's interesting. Jesus says, look, you want to understand what I did? Well, look back and see what I foretold was going to happen. Jesus is basically saying the Scriptures are clear. Read the Scriptures. You can understand them. And you can understand them if you know they're about me. This is what theologians call perspicuity. Yes, that's exactly right. Theologians take a clear concept and then give it an unclear word like perspicuity. And we can get caught up in all types of things like that. We get so diving into these isms and these theologies and this and that. Study God's word. Now, I'm not against theologians. I'm not against reading deep things. But it should always point back to this, the clarity of Scripture. Now, I'm not saying everything is equally clear because the Apostle Peter even says something Paul wrote are hard to understand. Yet, what it's saying is the things you need to know to know who God is and to be saved are clear so that anyone of mental cap- cap- capabilities, who can say capabilities, can understand them. You don't need to go to a seminary, you don't need to learn Greek or Hebrew. If you can think, then you can understand that you're a sinner, that you are created by God and he loves you, and that though you sinned, he loved you so much he sent his son to die for you, and that if you'll submit to him, confess that only he can save you, then you will not die and be punished, but die and rise again like Jesus and live with him forever. You don't need a Ph.D. to understand that, and the scriptures clearly teach that. And so Jesus is showing, look, if you want to know me, it's not about deep philosophical truths it's easy it's not a mystery and yet that raises another important point in that spiritual truth is not devoid of content just as true spirituality is not obscure philosophy neither is it found in mind altering experiences or mind emptying experiences you want to know god you want to be truly spiritual use your mind fill it with scripture and know that all that scripture As Jesus said in John 5.39, bears witness to him. And so Jesus summarizes, what was it all saying? Well, three big things, verse 46. First, the Messiah had to suffer, which we saw throughout Luke's gospel, Jesus told them. But they didn't like that. In fact, in Mark 9, verse 2, Peter rebuked Jesus. Don't say stuff like that. You don't need to suffer. And yet, it was God's will that the Messiah would be pierced for our transgressions that he would be crushed for our iniquities, and that by his chastisement, we would have peace. The peace that Jesus came to secure, for by his wounds, we are healed. Second, not only would he suffer, though, but he would rise on the third day. Jesus also predicted this, Luke 9, 22, He said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day, be raised god would not allow his holy one to see corruption as job declared he knows that his redeemer lives not lived lives he is alive and reigning and third in verse 47 the main truths are that the scriptures say that repentance upon his name would be preached for the forgiveness of sins to all nations beginning from jerusalem this message of repentance is nothing new. It was summarized well in Ezekiel 18.30. God says, therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel. Everyone according to his ways declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. God doesn't want their iniquity to be their ruin. And so he says, repent so that I might forgive. And he calls them to repent, But notice something interesting, because in verse 47, it says that this repentance and forgiveness of sins will be in his name, in Jesus' name. You know, in the Old Testament, it always pointed to in his name, referring to God, the Father. But now Jesus is showing that he is the mediator. He is the one that through him, we might have forgiveness. And this has been the message throughout Luke's gospel. What did John the Baptist proclaim when he came? Luke 3:3. 3, 3, he said that he had a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus said in Luke 5:32, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The disciples understood this, and thus when they preached, Acts 2:38, in Peter's first recorded sermon, he said, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So are we saved by repentance, or are we saved by faith? Well, both. They're really two sides of the same coin. To repent is to change your mind. But if I believe something new, then I have changed my mind, because I didn't used to believe it. And if I've repented, I'm going to now act differently. If you have new thoughts, you will have new actions, And Jesus is clear that when we repent, when we trust in his name, there is forgiveness of sins. This was made explicitly clear in Luke 5. You probably know the story, one often told in children's curriculum of the man who had a friend who was a paralytic, and they wanted him to come to Jesus, but the house was full, so they tore through the roof and lowered the man to Jesus. And yet Jesus didn't say to the man, rise and walk. He first said, your sins are forgiven. Well, this outraged the religious leaders. They said, this is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus actually agreed with their assumption. He goes, you're right. Only God alone could forgive sins. He disagreed with their conclusion. The conclusion is, you don't think I'm God. And Jesus tells them in Luke chapter 5, he says, I did this that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. In other words, he's saying, I am God in your midst. That's why sins are now forgiven in my name. So what do you do with your sins? Our culture doesn't like the word sin. We like to say we have mistakes. We like to say, well, you know, no one's perfect. But what do you do with the fact that every single one of us does things that we say we shouldn't do and then we feel guilt about it well some people then try and cover it up well i'll just do more good stuff well you know i did all this so yeah i know I did that thing that i really regret but i've done all this and they try and cover up other people just try to preach positive affirmation over their life and yet jesus says true lasting eternal forgiveness comes in his name it's as we repent of our sins and trust in him And we see that amazing forgiveness right here in this story. Because what does Jesus do? He doesn't come preaching condemnation to all these disciples who fled. He comes and says, peace to you. And he preaches even today, peace to you if you will turn to him. Not just forgiveness for the Jews or the religious, but notice what it says. It says, for all the nations beginning from Jerusalem again this is the message throughout chapter 2 what did the angel said I bring you news good news of great joy that will be for all the people yes it did begin with the Jews but Christianity is the flower out of the plant of Judaism out of the Old Testament Christianity does not steal from it it is what it should be in its fulfillment and yet, to this date, over almost 2,000 years after Jesus left, there are over 6,200 unique people groups representing over 3 billion people who have never heard and have no readily available opportunity to hear the gospel. Now, that may seem shocking to you because we know literally hundreds if not thousands of Christians. You can access Christian teaching, Christian literature, Christian sermons, podcasts, podcasts, Anywhere you want. And yet over 3 billion people alive today have no opportunity to hear the message of Christ. As Paul says, how then will they call on him whom they never believed? How are they to believe in him whom they never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And thus may we continue Jesus' mission, that this message might go to all the nations. May we urgently, passionately, sacrificially help and send and pray for those who go out. In two weeks, we have a great opportunity to hear and learn of what is going on in Antofagasta, Chile, and the plans to then go even further so they can reach another part of Chile, where there is not a gospel witness. You know, I hope for each of you, the names on our prayer sheet are not some names of abstract people, but you know who David and Christy Flink are, that you pray for them regularly. That's not just something, oh yeah, our church supports some missionaries, I think they're in Chile, that you are burdened, that you are given not just to them, but to others, that the gospel may go to all the nations. Well, not only Was the Messiah foretold of to suffer, die, and rise again? But Jesus declares in verse 48, and you are witnesses to these things. And we often miss the first intention of these verses. Notice what Jesus didn't say. He's not commanding them to be witnesses, i.e., witness is not a verb. Jesus is saying they are witnesses, witness is a noun. John Frame writes, Scripture does command us to preach, teach, proclaim, and so on, but not to witness. The reason, I think, is that God has already made us witnesses. We have no choice in the matter. He does not command us to be witnesses because we already are. We can witness truly or falsely, but we cannot avoid witnessing. It would be like me saying to someone who is married, be a husband can't you are you are a husband the question is are you being a good husband or a bad husband we are witnesses we're either good witnesses or bad witnesses but we are all witnesses now to be clear our witness is distinct from the disciples they are the ones of who luke is writing to theophilus saying these are eyewitnesses these people literally saw jesus flesh they saw his hands and his holes in his hands and his feet they ate with him they saw him eat even after the resurrection they are unique witnesses but we too are witnesses witnesses to their testimony and also witnesses in regards to as paul said in acts 14 17 where he says yet god did not leave himself without witness for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons satisfying your hearts with food and gladness We are all witnesses every day to God's common grace that he gives every one of us, that he is a good God. And so we must speak and proclaim and witness to that and then also what we have seen and heard in his word. And there being witness again points back to the historical nature of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The disciples in Luke are not passing on hearsay, They're not inventing this. They are showing what they heard with their ears, saw with their eyes, touched with their hands, and proclaimed to us. And they do this so that we might have fellowship with God, and that we might have complete joy. This commitment to being historically accurate witnesses is even seen by the fact of how they replaced Judas. One of their criteria is, this man must have been a witness to these things and then as they proclaim the message this is an important part of their proclamation as peter says in acts 2 32 this jesus god raised up and of that we are all witnesses yet though they are witnesses so far they have been scared and fleeing witnesses and yet that is about to change because notice verse 49 And behold, Jesus declares, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Jesus is declaring the promise of the Father that he will send the Holy Spirit upon them. Luke then records this in Acts chapter 2, verses 16 and 21, where on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit comes upon them, and then they go out and preach with power they go out and preach with boldness and yet then they're arrested and for those who've read the gospels we wonder well what's going to happen now are they again going to run and flee and yet as they're on trial the triers say these people speak with boldness and then afterwards they go back to the other christians and notice what they pray acts four twenty nine. they say and now lord look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. How are you going to have power this week to be the person God calls you to be, to be the wife God calls you to be, to be the single person God calls you to be, to be the child God calls you to be. Well, the Scripture is clear. It's not as we look inside and find our resources. It's as we look up and we cry out and say, God, we need power from you. We need power to do what we would not normally do. We'd normally be the type of people who flee like the disciples, but would you give us boldness? Would you give me strength? to be faithful in this situation where I'm tempted to fail. Thus, don't buy the lies of such things as Christian self-help. There could really be no greater oxymoron. Christians are the people who admit they are completely dependent on divine help. We don't need self-help. We need to look up away from ourselves. That is where our help and strength comes from. And yet this is only going to happen As Jesus leaves, for it is only then that the Spirit will be given. And we see this lastly in verses 50 through 53, because Jesus is going to bless and then leave his disciples. As we noted earlier, we're not told here in Luke the amount of time, but in Luke's next writing, Acts, he tells us this is 40 days. But in that time, he eventually takes them to Bethany on the Mount of Olives. And there he lifts his hand and he blesses them. And even while he's blessing them, he is taken up into heaven. You know, the last words they heard from Jesus was him blessing them. Now, I don't know what you picture when you picture God. But here he's showing us God delights to bless his people. He didn't leave with warnings, and y'all better not run away like you did last time. Let me give you one more judgment before I leave. He leaves blessing his people. And then the disciples worshiped they return to jerusalem and they continue in the temple blessing god and christians have called this the ascension because jesus ascends into heaven and we or i should say i often rush through it so quickly oh it's so so clear and we miss the important truths of it and i think there's three really important things that we should consider first jesus stayed for 40 days teaching giving visible evidence to his disciples that he was alive. He had already spent 33 years on earth. He had already died and risen again. His mission is fulfilled. Let's go. I want to go back home. And yet he spends 40 days instructing and being with his disciples. And Jesus didn't need to ascend. He didn't ascend as though that's the only way he could go be with the Father. He ascended so the disciples would know, this is the last time. This is not, well, he disappeared. Is he coming back again? I don't know. He kind of comes in and out. No, he is showing them, look, I am now leaving, but now go and wait, because the power of the Spirit will come upon you. But a second important thing is notice how this fulfills Jesus' words and God's plan. You know, when Jesus was on trial, the religious leaders asked him, are you the Messiah And then he replied, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And it is because of those words they then condemn him and say, What else does he need to say? And they send him to Pilate. And Jesus' ascension vindicates his words, that he is now at the right hand of the power of god an interesting thing to ask is where is jesus now what is jesus doing right now you, If you looked at the pictures if you looked at the representations that many christians have you would think that jesus is still on the cross you would think that jesus is still in agony in the arms of mary jesus is not on the cross jesus is not still in agony Jesus has conquered, and he is now risen and reigning from heaven. So it's not that we shouldn't focus on the fact that Jesus was on the cross. It's that the cross is now completed, fulfilled, and he is now ruling and reigning as the son of David, his kingdom. And in his reign, what is he doing? Well, Alistair Begg expressed it well. He is preparing a place for you, and he is interceding for you and we could spend so much time on that if you have time this afternoon john 14 a great passage on how jesus went to prepare a place romans 8 how jesus even now is interceding for us but all of this happens because he's not here on earth he's not on the cross he is able to intercede he's able to prepare a place because he is at the right hand of the father of the power on high a third major thing we should realize from this is that the disciples now get it. It's rather interesting if you read the Gospels, what do the disciples do earlier when Jesus says, I'm going to leave you? They get sorrowful. They rebuke him. So what is it that before made them sorrowful and now makes them rejoice? He's doing the very thing he said. Before it made them sad. Now they're glad. It's because now they get it. They had been with Jesus 40 days, and through his teaching them the scriptures, they've come to see that Jesus brought peace to this earth. They have had their eyes opened to the wonder of Jesus being the king who came to restore this world, and he conquered all powers on the cross. Yet they've also realized this will not be fully realized until Jesus leaves and comes again. You probably had the experience where you're looking forward to a vacation, and you get to the day of, and your spouse or your parent or whatever has to go to work. And so what do you tell them that day? As they get ready to leave, you go, hurry, go, hurry, so you can come back sooner. Get your project done and come back. You want them to go because the sooner they go, the sooner you're reunited. And the disciples know, yes, he's gone. And now that he's gone, the sooner he's coming back. And so they no longer weep, they have joy. They know the sooner Jesus goes to the Father, the sooner they'll be reunited reunited with him. The sooner Jesus ascends, the sooner they'll be filled with the Spirit. The sooner he leaves, the sooner he's preparing a place for them. The sooner he departs, the sooner they have a heavenly interceder, right by God the Father. They now understand, though they did not before, that Jesus' departure is not a final goodbye. Rather, it's the next step for an eternity where they'll never have to say goodbye again. So where is Jesus? What is he doing? He's not on the cross, but he is in heaven pleading our case and preparing our place. Thus may we, like the disciples, joyfully worship him, knowing that that he made a way for us to be forgiven. He's opened the door so that people of every tribe, tongue, and nation might repent and have peace with God. And thus, as we look on our world, yes, there's things that can make us groan. But may we not be people only of downcast spirits, but with joyful confidence, because Jesus now has ascended, and he's ruling, and he's reigning. Let's pray. Oh Lord, give us that joy. Would your spirit come and fill each of us that though we see this world and though, as we sang earlier, we see the troubles and the burdens and we groan, we know that ultimately it will be fixed by you. Would we look forward to the day when your son returns? And yet even now we plead to you through him, through his shed blood that allowed us to have peace with you